Hi, this is Mind Matters, Episode 2. Thanks for tuning in. In making this podcast, my goal isn't simply to say different kinds of things in the same way each episode, but rather to demonstrate that there are so many different uses in understanding our minds. Now, as we saw in episode one, it can be useful for our immediate well-being, for example, to understand what negative emotion is doing in the system of our minds. And really, when we understand this, there are some pretty obvious conclusions that we can immediately actualize to make our lives better. And this is great. But by no means is this the only reason that paying attention to what's going on in our own minds is worthwhile. Right? We talked about in episode zero how we are just, as a matter of fact, intrinsically interested in what's going on in our minds. You know, why do we perceive the world the way we do? Why do we behave the way we do? All of these questions are fascinating to everybody, I claim, whether or not people explicitly ask them. And this episode will be devoted to that kind of thinking, just the raw interest that we have in the processes of our own minds. In my view, there's no better place to start in talking about interesting questions of mind than dreaming. Okay, dreaming is so, so weird. It is a bizarre fact of our experience. And I think that we run into a problem in kind of discounting the relevance and the fascination of dreams simply because we have them every night. Imagine just how different the world would be for everyone in general and for you in particular if instead of dreaming every night we had let's say 10 dreams in our lifetime think about the religions that would spring up in attempting to claim and interpret these significant life events these once a decade occurrences imagine what the stakes would be in remembering and interpreting these dreams when they occurred. Imagine the movies and the stories and the institutions built up around these random, magical experiences. Now, dreams don't become any less interesting simply because we have them every night. Right, the thing that would capture our fascination in this alternate universe where we only dream a handful of times in our life still occurs in our universe, only we've habituated to it, we've gotten used to it, but we've gotten used to something totally, totally bizarre. And just because something totally, totally bizarre happens every night doesn't make it less strange, less interesting. What is going on when we're dreaming? Now, highly related to this question, is why we don't have an answer to it readily available. You know, what is it about the way that we're investigating dreams, both scientifically and otherwise, that's leading to answers that we simply don't seem to find satisfying? Are you satisfied with your own understanding of dreams? Answering this question about why we don't have a good answer, I think is actually the best way to lead us to one. Now, I think that the right way of looking at dreams occupies something of a middle ground between a perfectly scientific understanding of the processes involved in dreaming and a first-person experiential understanding of what's going on. Now, of course, the only reason that we know that there's a there there when it comes to dreams, that there's something worth looking into, is because each of us has the experience of dreaming. Of course, if we didn't have this experience, we wouldn't find dreaming interesting. That's kind of the whole point. So it's fairly clear from this understanding that if we ever were to make any progress in understanding dreaming, it would be a mistake to only pay attention to our experience and totally forget about the science. But, and I think much more relevantly in our current moment, it would also be a mistake only to pay attention to what the science is telling us about brain states during REM sleep, for example, without trying to map this onto what's going on in terms of our experience. Again, it's the experience of having dreams that makes all of these questions worth asking anyway. 
right? This happens to you and me and everyone else every night, whether or not we remember it. And that's what we're trying to look at. And if we're trying to find some kind of scientific theory of dreaming that pays absolutely no attention to the real experiences of dreams, we're never going to make real progress. Over time, there seems to be something of a pendulum of credibility that we afford to people when we talk about dreams. And 100, 150 years ago, the pendulum swung in such a way that the psychoanalysts, the more literary, humanistic types, were the ones who served as the dominant authority on what dreaming was. And of course, 150 years ago, this makes a great deal of sense. Who else is there in this space besides people who can make pretty noises about what dreaming might be? And Carl Jung was one of these people, and Sigmund Freud was one of these people. And because this style of attempting to understand dreams wasn't grounded in anything meaningfully scientific, these guys got a few things right, some things sort of right, and a lot of stuff dead wrong. We need science in a conversation about what's going on with dreams. Okay, well, we fast forward to the present day, and it seems as though the pendulum has swung in the entirely opposite direction. Neuroscientists seem now to be the cultural authority when it comes to trying to get to the bottom of dreaming. These are the people that we pay closest attention to when we decide we're curious enough to investigate this question. It seems almost silly to say, but it's worth keeping in mind that neuroscientists are just people, just like everyone else. You know, they go to work, maybe in academia, maybe for a private corporation, they do their research, and they live their lives. Neuroscience is a discipline, like any other, and the people that choose to become neuroscientists presumably do so because they see a value in the way the field looks at the world. So it's very rarely said, but nonetheless, it's extremely obvious that the people, the humans who go into neuroscience are the ones who say, yes, you know, the best way of studying the mind or the brain is in a third person, systematic, mechanical, technical way. It's like trying to figure out how the inside of a car works. At this point, I've spent a good deal of time studying with many people who call themselves neuroscientists, and it's fairly clear what kind of person is interested in this field. They are biological technicians. They love the nitty-gritty, the strange details, the working out of circuits and systems in the brain. They're trying to map the programs that run inside the mind. This is all well and good and extremely useful. But in precisely the same way that if we only pay attention to our first-person experience, we're going to end up with the same kinds of mistakes that the early psychoanalysts made. If we only pay attention to the third-person, systematic, mechanical view of what's going on in the mind generally, and what's going on when we dream specifically, we're still not going to get a coherent story of what's going on. These people are neuroscientists. They are not storytellers. And if they were storytellers, they wouldn't have been neuroscientists. We should look at what we're going for here as a story. We want a story that tells us why we dream. But we want it to be a true story, you see? We want it to be non-fiction. And the facts that will inform this story will come from neuroscience. But if we wait for the neuroscientists to tell us the story itself, we're going to be sitting on our hands for quite a while. And I believe that this is precisely what's happened. It's a huge mistake to view the scientific and the non-scientific components of understanding dreaming as being hostile to one another. You know, this can't be the psychoanalysts versus the neuroscientists. It's a huge error. Instead, we need to view these things as mutually necessary and mutually compatible ingredients in the story that's going to make sense of dreaming. Okay, well, 
I'm going to try to lay out at least what I see to be an outline of this story. You know, I think we have it. So, it makes sense in doing this to start with two absolutely essential relationships we need to get under our belts. The first of which is the relationship of sleep to being awake, and the second is the relationship of our brains to the rest of our bodies. And if we can frame these two things properly, the story of dreaming, I think, quite naturally follows. The clearest way to jump into understanding both of these relationships has to do with conceiving of the fundamental difference between what's going on inside our bodies and what's going on outside our bodies. And the key here is that the default settings in both are different. So for example, regardless of what the temperature is outside, our bodies maintain a temperature of about 98 degrees. Regardless of how much oxygen there is in the atmosphere in any particular moment, our blood oxygen levels stay at some particular threshold. And in both of these cases, moving what seem like fairly minor degrees in either sense can result in death for the organism. And in this sense, it's fairly useful to think of death as what happens when this boundary between the default settings of the organism and the default settings of the environment collapse into the same thing. Okay, so it can be pretty clearly said for these reasons that fundamentally what the organism is doing, what's going on in the life of any living creature, is the maintenance of this energy boundary. And by and large, this boundary is maintained with behavior. You know, when we get hungry, we eat, and that keeps our energy levels different from our environments. When we feel like we need to breathe, we breathe. That keeps our oxygen levels different from those of the environment, and so on. At the end of the day, this is the core drive of every single living thing on this planet. It's the very definition of what it means to be living as opposed to non-living. And of course, things live for more than a moment, which means the fundamental motivation of a living system is to keep living, to maintain this state of different default settings from the environment. Now, because this description accounts for literally every single living thing on this planet, from unicellular organisms to plants to animals to complex animals, of course, it's not going to fully capture the complexity of the most complex animals. And we are the most complex animals. But our complexity is built on the same foundation that all other life is built upon. And this is where we hit the critical point that will eventually lead us back into talking directly about dreaming. And the critical point is this. Every single system in every single organism is characterized by something of a sorting process, a filtering process. And the filtering process is oriented towards continuing the difference between the organism and the environment. Let's take the respiratory system as an example of this. So what the lungs do is take in air with all kinds of compounds in it, nitrogen and carbon and oxygen and so on, and the goal of the lungs is to filter this such that we're getting the oxygen into our bloodstream that serves a series of extremely important purposes in the rest of the body and getting rid of carbon dioxide. And so we inhale and this happens moment to moment. And when we exhale, we're getting rid of the waste product. This is precisely what's happening in the digestive system. Only instead of air, we're doing this with the calories we consume, with the nutrients that we're taking in. And what our digestive system does is break down the food that we eat into useful and non-useful components. And the useful components get integrated into the body, and the non-useful components don't. And again, what makes oxygen relevant and carbon dioxide irrelevant, what makes calories relevant but waste irrelevant, 
is this distinction between the default settings of the organism and the default settings of the environment. We need oxygen to keep this difference going. We need calories to keep this difference going. And now we're poised to ask, what's the difference between this process when we're awake and when we're asleep? And if the lungs are transforming air into usable oxygen, and the digestive system is transforming food into usable calories, what's the brain doing? It simply seems to be the case that when we're awake, this filtering, sorting process, getting the useful stuff and throwing out the irrelevant stuff, happens externally. That is, this happens when the organism engages with the world around it. We behave during the day. And all behavior follows the same pattern that we've drawn. We're moving towards the relevant and ignoring or avoiding the irrelevant or the dangerous. And all of this is happening again in terms of the maintenance of the difference between our organism and the environment in which it exists. We are a tiny part of a big environment, and during the day, while we're awake, our fundamental role is to maintain the integrity of the little drop that we are in the vast ocean that surrounds us, and ensuring that the boundary between us and the world remains intact. So it's true that we're a part of a bigger system, but we are also a big system of which smaller things are a part. We are made of organs, organs are made of tissues, tissues are made of cells, and so on. And just as we order ourselves in terms of a larger environment while we're awake, it seems as though these subsystems of our bodies order themselves within the larger environment of our organism while we sleep. There's a huge and increasingly convincing body of evidence that demonstrates the fundamental role of sleep is something like restoration or repair. Just as the role of the organism when awake is to resist succumbing to the dynamics of the environment, the role of sleep is to ensure that this process also happens internally, such that any subsystem of the body, any organ or tissue, doesn't get swept away in the dynamics of its environment, which is the body. Despite the wear and tear that comes about throughout the day, the lungs must continue doing what the lungs do and so too with the small intestine, and so too with every other tissue or system of the body. In this sense, being asleep and being awake aren't actually that different in terms of what's going on. In both cases, smaller systems work to ensure that their dynamics continue despite their environment having different dynamics. When we're awake, we're the small system, and our environment is the bigger one, with different dynamics. When we're asleep, however, we are the big system. We are the environment. And we're populated by smaller subsystems, organs, tissues, and so on, that act in a very similar way that we act in light of our environments while we're awake. So, hooray! We've figured out one of our two problems. What's the difference between being awake and being asleep? Well, when we're awake, it seems as though we're separating the relevant from the irrelevant. We're sifting the useful from the non-useful, but we're doing it externally. When we're asleep, we're doing precisely the same thing, but we're doing it internally. Our bodies are the environments in which this happens when we sleep. Incidentally, we're also very close to answering our second question. What is the difference between what the brain is doing and what the rest of the organs in the body are doing? Well, in the rest of the organs of the body, we're seeing the same kind of resistance to entropy, resistance to the dynamics of the environments of which these organs are a part. The lungs take in just any old air, but they sift it to get oxygen, and they discard the rest. 
the digestive system will take any food in, but the useful caloric intake is integrated into the energy of the body. The rest is discarded. So what does the brain do? Well, the brain does the same thing, but it does it with information. The brain is a giant sifting mechanism, a funnel of sorts, that absorbs relevant information and discards irrelevant information. Now, we'll talk a bit later about by what criteria we decide that some information is relevant and other information is irrelevant. But for now, let's just focus on mapping our new understanding of the brain as an informational filter onto what we now understand about the difference between being awake and being asleep. Again, when we're awake, we're externally oriented, our surroundings are the environment. When we're asleep, we're internally oriented, and we are the environment for all of our subsystems. And in this sense, we can notice that what the brain might be doing, if it is an informational filter while we're awake, is mapping what we understand in relation to our greater environment. But when we're asleep, what we understand becomes the environment inside of which new information can nestle itself. This is where we can begin to understand the mechanics of what happens when we dream. After a full day of receiving huge amounts of informational input, when we fall asleep, the activity of our nervous system quiets down quite a bit. When neurons only 45 minutes ago were firing hundreds of times per second, now they're firing perhaps only a few times per second. And this is why this period of sleep is called slow wave sleep colloquially referred to, obviously, as deep sleep. Now, in deep sleep, there's no dreaming going on. If you wake people up in this period, they're going to be kind of out of it for a bit, and if they report that anything was happening, they'll say that it was something more like thinking than dreaming. And this makes sense because, again, we have to remember sleep isn't just about the brain. All of the other organs in our body and the tissues that comprise them, and the cells that comprise the tissues, are in the state of being repaired and restored and rejuvenated to resist entropy within the body during sleep. This is what we've established previously. Soon though, things get a bit more interesting and a bit more cognitive. Even though we've only been asleep for about two hours, we slowly begin to ascend from slow-wave sleep into something a bit more psychological. And what this means biologically is one kind of what's called a neuromodulator turns back on in the brain. Everything else remains off. Its name is acetylcholine, and it's a bit less famous than its peers, serotonin and dopamine, for example. But what acetylcholine is fundamentally responsible for is something like behavioral alertness. That's probably the best way of putting it. It's a kind of focus that primes us to act. Now, there's one trick that's going on, and it seems to be a pretty ingenious adaptation from an evolutionary perspective, and that's that a separate, more basic part of our brain, located deeper in its structure, keeps us paralyzed during this lighter stage of sleep. So we have two things kind of in paradoxical opposition to one another. We are behaviorally alert, but we're paralyzed. Additionally, you can put someone in this stage of sleep into a brain scanner and notice that the newer, more human parts of their brain, their cerebral cortex, is lighting up, but not in the parts that relate to decision-making that relate to sophisticated behavioral navigation. It seems only the visual, more environmentally oriented regions and the emotional regions are lighting up. Unsurprisingly, if you wake someone up who's in this stage of sleep, they'll report to you that they're dreaming. And this cycle continues throughout sleep. 
Each time though, we don't get as deep as we got the first time. We fall asleep, we go super deep, we crawl back up into this dream state, we go back down but a little less deep than we did the first time, back into the dream state, and so on. And this happens about four or five times throughout the night, of course, depending on how much sleep we get. Now, particularly in these stages of sleep that relate more clearly to the brain than to the rest of the body, we should clarify that there are a few different ways in which the brain is resisting entropy, and some are more abstract than others. So most basically, when the brain fires throughout the day, there's a lot of neurophysiological gunk that just kind of accumulates. And we essentially have an entire custodial staff in our brain called glial cells that clean up this mess and keep the brain from becoming toxic. But there's another kind of entropy that the brain works to resist during sleep. And this is a bit more abstract. This is, again, an informational entropy. Now, to get a better grasp of what this could mean, we get to take a very interesting detour into understanding the nature of how we acquire knowledge itself. In other words, what does it look like to go from totally not knowing something to knowing it? Is it like a switch? First we don't know it and then we do? Or is it like a dimmer where we gradually go from darkness into light? Now, I suspect that most people's intuitions actually align more with this first idea of knowing something being like a switch. You know, we didn't know it before, and now we do. And this is understandable, but the story actually seems to be way more interesting than this. And the punchline is that the way we begin to turn up the dimmer of our understanding happens in the dream. It is what a dream is, in other words. And this is going to take a bit of explaining. Up to this point, it's been useful to think of the brain as something of a filter, absorbing relevant information and discarding irrelevant information. And this is useful, but it's not comprehensive. And the reason it's not comprehensive, what it's leaving out, is by what criteria do we establish something to be relevant or irrelevant? What constitutes relevance, in other words? This might seem like some daunting philosophical question, but in my understanding, it has a one-word answer. Behavior. Behavior. Now, I'm convinced the single biggest mistake that the vast majority of people make in thinking about the mind or the brain is that it is an engine for thoughts. It's an engine for informational computation. At its core, most fundamentally, that's what it is. No. At its core, our nervous system is an engine for behavior, an engine for action. That's what it is at its core. And the complex computational cognitive stuff is built upon that foundation Right, this is the difference most fundamentally between plants and animals. Plants don't have nervous systems, animals do. That's the biggest difference. And the manifestations of that difference are most obvious in behavior. Plants don't get up and move around. They don't navigate their local environment in search of food or mates or anything like this. They're stationary. They don't behave in a meaningful sense. They grow, but that's not behavior. Of course, animals do move around, right? We fence in our gardens, not because we're afraid that the plants are going to get up and run away, but that the animals are going to get in. The animals are the things that can get in. And because animals move around, they're logically required to gather information about their environments that helps them determine where to move. If there's a lion running at you full speed, well, that's a pretty relevant piece of data in determining what you should do next. And so, 
It's the behavior that leads to the informational quality of the mind of an animal, not the other way around. It's in this way that we can see why the filter analogy of the brain is incomplete. Yeah, it tells us that we sort the relevant from the irrelevant, but what it doesn't tell us is that all of this is done in the name of behaving. That's the point of the whole system. That's the reason that we devote energy to determining what's relevant and what's not, so we can behave in light of it. So it's for this reason that I think we should swap our filter analogy for one of a funnel. Most fundamentally and comprehensively, what the brain, yours and mine, can be said to be doing is funneling information towards behavior. Behavior is the endpoint of this informational process. This is a big deal if you are following and agree with the logic here, because effectively what this tells us is, going back to our dimmer analogy of knowledge, what it means for the light to be brightest, what it means to know something at its limit, to know it as much as you can know it, is to be behaving in light of that information. And we all certainly know this to be true in our own lives, right? This is what it means to say, put your money where your mouth is, or actions speak louder than words, or practice what you preach, right? This is all the exact same idea. And under all of these aphorisms is the implicit recognition of the fact that when we believe something most authentically, most genuinely, we're behaving in light of that information. We're not just talking about it. We're not just reading about it. We're not just listening to a podcast about it. We're doing it. And that's how we prove most fundamentally what we believe. Again, knowing this is useful because what it's going to allow us to do is work backwards from the least dim setting of knowledge, right? If this is knowledge at its brightest, we can take it one step back two steps back, three steps back, and so on, until we arrive, I claim, at the dream, which in our analogy is where the light of understanding goes from being off to being very dimly on. Okay, so let's work backwards from a state of total understanding. This is a state in which behavior effortlessly occurs. What does information look like in the mind of the individual who's behaving? Well, for starters, we need to have some kind of structured knowledge about where we are, right? If we don't know where we are, there's no way we're going to know how to behave there. Now the point here, the emphasis of attention, should go to the word structured. What does it mean to have structured knowledge about an environment? Well, I think the most clear word that we've come up with to explain this is order. The word order has at least two distinct definitions, and they're both really useful in understanding what it means for knowledge to have any structure. The first kind of order with which we're familiar is organizational order. It's like your room can be in a state of order, or it can be in a state of disorder. Okay, well, let's push on this. What does it mean in this sense for something to be ordered? Well, an ordered space is one that accords to a well-balanced hierarchy. Okay, let's think about this. So, you walk into a room that is in a state of order. Let's say it's your room. And you're looking for your scissors, let's say. Well, Immediately, there are a few different places you could look, right? There's your bed, perhaps, there's your desk, there's your bookshelf, your nightstand. All of these are potential nodes, let's say. Well, okay, you know that if your scissors are where they're supposed to be, they're in your desk. So then you move to your desk. And now on your desk, there are a few more nodes to consider. There's the top drawer, the middle drawer, the bottom drawer, the top of your desk. Well, again, if you're looking for your scissors, and let's say you know where they are, then you know they're in the top drawer. Okay, you open the top drawer, and now, again, we're greeted with more notes. Is it in the front? Is it in the middle? Is it in the back? Well, your scissors go in the back. So, there they are in the back. 
And just like this, we can see that a room in order, or any space for that matter, is one that accords to a balanced hierarchy of functions. We went room, desk, drawer, back. Each of those is akin to clicking on a folder on a computer, or pursuing the trunk to a branch, to a twig, to a leaf on a tree. Trees are a prototypically good example of a well-balanced hierarchy. Alternatively, your room is in a state of disorder if, after looking for your scissors in the back of the drawer in the desk in the room, you realize they were in your bed all along. Well, what the hell is that? It's certainly not a well-balanced hierarchy. And this kind of thing leads us to the second way that we use the word order, which isn't exactly like keeping your room organized. We say, do things in the right order. Okay, well, why do we use the word order here? It seems fundamentally to again rely on this idea of hierarchy. Right, in order to get to the scissors, not only do we need to know particular kinds of information about the nature of the room, but we need to know in what order, in what sequence, this information is relevant. Right, we can't get to our beloved scissors without going into the back of the drawer. We can't go to the back of the drawer without going to the drawer. We can't get to the drawer without going to the desk, and so on. Right, so the sequence of operations matters just as much as the content here. And all of this is to demonstrate that when we are behaving, again, which is the point of our nervous systems, the point of all of our thinking, the point of our cognition, when we behave, we're doing this hierarchically. That's what the structure of knowledge looks like when we behave. If we were to map this out visually, it would look a whole lot like a tree. So this is really useful because now we get to ask, okay, where do these hierarchies come from and how do we build them? Happily, we can again appeal to scissors here. And we can think about, at some point, our room wasn't in a state where we knew exactly where the scissors were. Okay, well, right before that state, there was some kind of decision that was made. You know, I could put the scissors in any drawer of the desk, I could keep them in my bed, I could keep them in my nightstand, I could bring them downstairs, I could sell them, I could give them to my friend, right? So this list goes on essentially forever. And this is not a hierarchy. This is a network. If a hierarchy is like a tree, then a network is like a web. There's some kind of fixed point, in our example, what to do with the damn scissors, and there are seemingly an infinite number of nodes that spring off from this point. We could do this, we could do that, we could put them here, we could put them there. This isn't structured, ordered knowledge. In fact, it's knowledge on the brink of order. It's knowledge with the potential for order. Take another network, your social network. Think about all the followers you might have on Instagram, or the friends you might have on Facebook. Okay, this is just a list. There is no hierarchy to speak of here. Now slowly, Instagram and Facebook, which I continually forget are the same entity, are realizing that this isn't good enough. And now, outcrop features like close friends, best friends, private stories, and so on. And this is the encroaching of a hierarchy into what was once a network. Right, what was once 100 or 500 undifferentiated, totally equal followers, we're now starting to see a kind of segmentation, a kind of structuring of different levels at which people can be followers. Now, here's the claim. It's really important, and it's very similar to the relationship between rectangles and squares that most people learn in grade school. All information that becomes a hierarchy, and remember for us that means all information that we ultimately use to behave, originated from a network. Right, we can see this the moment we decide that of all the possible places we could put our dear scissors, we decide the back of the drawer and the desk in the room is the best place to do this. And in this way, we refine the totality of possible places we could put the scissors 
into a structured, ordered hierarchy. And the reason that the relationship between hierarchies and networks is much like the relationship between squares and rectangles is because not all networks are destined to become a hierarchy. That would be equivalent to the claim that all information in our lives is going to be perfectly ordered one day. Nonsense. Instead, I'm simply claiming that all of the information that eventually ends up in a kind of hierarchy that we use in behavior was once much more like a network. Information does seem to evolve in this way, where you can't get to a hierarchy without first flowing through a network-like configuration. Okay, if at this point you're saying, what the hell is this kid talking about? Why does any of this have anything to do with dreams? I don't blame you. The language of networks and hierarchies seems a bit technological and artificial, but what isn't this? What is one of the most natural and human capacities that we could possibly imagine is the story. And my claim is that the story is a proposition about how we might move from a network to a hierarchy. Let's linger here for a moment. Just because, again, if our endpoint is to make sense of dreams, we've got to understand what stories are. And stories, incidentally, seem to be absolutely critical vehicles of upgrading networks into hierarchies. Here are a bunch of words that all point to the same phenomenon. Narrative, story, simulation, imagined consequences of behavior, it's all the same thing. And stories don't just exist in books and movies, though they certainly exist there too. We tell ourselves stories all the time, and the most obvious place in which we do this is in our dreaming life. Stories ask a very complicated question in a very simple way. What if? What if we put our scissors under our pillow as opposed to in our desk? What if coronavirus never happened? What if a magical school or a magical kingdom or a magical world existed populated with people just like us? What would change? With stories, we take these seemingly random details, these totally unconstellated networks of information, and we simulate the dynamics of the interaction of these random things. And if this interaction goes well, the outcome isn't horrifying. We tend to integrate these things into our system, our hierarchy. If we don't like the outcome, if it's a bad movie, or hiding the scissors under our pillow is going to lead to only chaos, we tend not to integrate that story into our hierarchy. We're talking here generally about the capacity to imagine counterfactual situations, possibilities that may never happen if only in our heads or in a book. Jordan Peterson puts best what the evolutionary logic of this kind of capacity might be. He says, by abstracting ideas before implementing them, we can allow our bad ideas to die instead of us, right? The evolutionary logic of this is fairly clear. If you simulate going into a cave that you just watch a lion walk into, you can briefly play that story through in your head. You can imagine yourself walking in, greeted by a lion, and the you in your imagination dies right there, just so you in real life don't have to. Imagination is simulation. These concepts are one in the same. And by and large, to simulate is to experiment. This is the creative, associative workplace for behavior. This is the sketch pad upon which we anticipate our beliefs and our understandings of the world. And yes, this is the space where the dream occurs. Now, in my view, psychologists and neuroscientists have indeed picked up on this phenomenon, but they seem to have only done it in the past tense. 
We learn when we study neuroscience or psychology that there are two kinds of memory that we have. Declarative memory, memories that we can talk about, and non-declarative memory, memories that we have but nonetheless can't speak explicitly about. The first kind of memory, declarative memory, actually breaks down into two things. Keep in mind this kind of looks like a hierarchy. We're told the first kind of declarative memory is called episodic memory. These are memories of stories that we have. These are the scenes of our lives and those of others, whether they're fictional or non-fictional. Our first-person memory of significant or even insignificant life events all falls under this first header of episodic memory. This is all to be contrasted with the second kind of declarative memory, semantic memory. Now, I think colloquially, when people are talking about memory, they actually mean episodic memory. They mean memories from life. Semantic memory is something more like knowledge. Semantic memory is what we know about the world, the structure that we've abstracted from it. This is what constitutes a non-fiction book. This is what sports fanatics and political junkies are so good with. This is what's on the other side of Snapple caps and what Jeopardy tests. There's a really good body of evidence that semantic and episodic memory are dissociable in the brain. That is, you can lose one without losing the other. And this seems to indicate that, yes, we have two processes going on. But what I think needs to be said a bit more clearly is what the relationship of each process is to the other, and certainly the idea that they're just two independent buckets of information is leaving out some important details in the story of how they function in the mind. We begin with raw experience. We take in data through our senses, and we make sense of it in the moment. Flashes of light, feelings, thoughts, smells, sounds, all of it. This is episodic. And when we experience something, we compare it to other experiences that we've had like it. So, of course, when we experience the same kind of thing multiple times, we're able to abstract from across the experiences and pick up something of a more semantic profile of what's going on. Then, of course, this semantic profile informs the next time we find ourselves in that experience. And we can see that there's certainly a reciprocal relationship between these two things. On the one hand, we have the episodic, network-like, low-to-the-ground, low-resolution narrative of experience. And on the other, we have a structured hierarchy of organized facts about the world. And these two things are constantly feeding on each other. And when the semantic falls back into the experience, when our facts re-enter the story of our lives, we call the arrow that connects these two things behavior. It's behavior. When the story of our lives feeds back up into the informational, systematic structure that we bring to behavior, we call this dreaming. The dream is the first step in transmuting messy, fuzzy details into rigid, fortified patterns. Dreaming is something like a first crack at the problem of really understanding something. And because of this, they're episodic. They are a narrative of bizarre, loosely assembled details. And most of the time, the details are too confusing to be happy. This is why 80% of dreams have a negative emotional tinge to them. You might remember from episode 1 that this kind of negative emotion arises when we don't understand what's going on. It's a space of anxiety. This also makes sense of the fact that 95% of dreams we forget. If dreams are processing memory itself, then to remember processing memory is almost akin to biting one's own teeth. Right, there's a clear logical redundancy here. This model also very clearly makes sense of the fact that dreams are bizarre. 
by definition, this kind of thinking should be extremely logically loose, and chaotic, and counterintuitive. It's the first step in transmuting pure chaos to something like order. But none of this is to say that dreams are totally random processes, and this is actually what a majority of neuroscientists seem to believe is the best interpretation of dreaming. These people say that dreams are like Brownian motion in physics, or static on a TV screen, or fuzz on a radio. Those are as random as you can get, and dreams, we're told, are like that. No way, this is not true. And it's so obviously not true. A child could tell you that what we engage with right before we fall asleep is very likely going to play into our dreams. That's not random. In fact, in the picture that we've painted, dreaming is really the first step away from random information and towards something a bit more like a hierarchy of knowledge. This model of dreams being the first step out of the episodic into the semantic, the beginning of turning a network into a hierarchy, also accords nicely with a lot of other evidence that's been gathered about dreaming. Neuroscientists like Matthew Walker, who wrote a best-selling book called Why We Sleep, has done controlled tests where the independent variable is whether or not the individual dreams. And he's found that, for example, people are statistically better at solving mazes when they've worked around on the problem and then fall asleep, have a dream about it, and wake back up and try to solve it again. We take a kind of network of unconstellated details, a maze that we've never seen before. We work on the problem, we gather the details, we dream, and when we dream, we begin to organize the network of information that we were just exposed to into something like a hierarchy of behaviors, solving a maze step by step in the right order. This has even been shown in mice who will run through a maze, and the areas of their brain that lit up when they ran through the maze will also light up when they're dreaming. And during this time, there's very clearly a compression of information that's occurring. Walker has also found that when people dream, as opposed to just getting REM sleep without dreaming, they're better able to process and handle negative emotion. And I won't rehash all of the logic of episode one, but suffice it to say, much of negative emotion comes about through uncertainty, through not knowing, and again, this accords with the same idea of disordered networks becoming ordered and understood systems. Though they're still vague and bizarre and ambiguous, dreams constitute the first step in understanding something well. And for this reason, they constitute the first step away from a negative emotional experience which largely occur, as we discuss at length in episode 1, in situations where we don't fully understand what's going on. The model of dreaming that I'm putting forward here almost justifies its own logic in what might be called an acceptably circular way, because right now the current state of the neuropsychological understanding of dreams can be best described as a network of information it's a network in need of a system, in need of a hierarchy. And I think that what I'm proposing here is the process of moving from the disorganized understanding of dreams to a decidedly more structured and coherent one. To finish this story properly, there's just one more thing that we need to account for. And that's the fact that there's something of a nested quality to the systems, the hierarchies, that represent the end point of this whole process we've been talking about. This is where our scissors story can come into play one last time. Now, what I mean by nested is that this act of getting the scissors, of locating them, is clearly one detail in a larger pattern of behavior, and itself a pattern inside of which there are little subroutines. So, 
in order to get the scissors, we navigated through the subroutine of first this, then this, then this. But of course, getting the scissors itself is just one cog in the wheel of, let's say, cutting out a piece of paper, which might be one cog in the wheel of doing well in a class, which might be one cog in the wheel of being successful in life, and so on. So this is what I mean by nested. And what we do is gather information and systematize it at each of these levels. So we do have some kind of belief about the biggest stuff, about being successful in life, or about the nature of dreams, or about the next 50 years of politics. And we also have concerns that relate to more day-to-day -day behaviors. When are we going to get out of quarantine, for example? What are we going to eat tomorrow for lunch? And the point is that, as far as dreams are concerned, all of this is fair game, from the more mundane abstractions to the most profound. And because of this kind of randomization of significance, we should be very skeptical of claims of neuroscientists who tell us that all dreams are, are trivial and random, and we should also be skeptical of the claims of psychoanalysts who say that every dream has a deep symbolic substructure to it. Certainly, we have to do this on a dream-by-dream -dream basis. And sometimes we're going to find ourselves agreeing with the neuroscientists, and sometimes we're going to find ourselves agreeing with the psychoanalysts. And this is okay. This isn't evidence of a contradiction. Rather, it's evidence that one understands Dreams are simply the first step in constellating systems of information from networks of episodic details. And sometimes the content of this first step towards order can be trivial or bizarre or indecipherable, but sometimes it can be beautiful or artistic or profound. And that's just plain awesome. Like that is such a cool, feature of our minds. In order to celebrate this, I want to read a page or two out of Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. I've already referenced it once in this episode, and he paints a really lovely picture of some of the most interesting and important treasures we have as a society that have come out of people's dreams. Walker writes, Mendeleev, a Russian chemist of renowned ingenuity, had an obsession he felt that there might be an organizational logic to the known elements in the universe, euphemistically described by some as the search for God's abacus. As proof of his obsession, Mendeleev made his own set of playing cards, with each card representing one of the universal elements and its unique chemical and physical properties. He would sit in his office, at home, or on long train rides, and maniacally deal the shuffled deck down onto a table, one card at a time, trying to deduce the rule of all rules that would explain how this ecumenical jigsaw puzzle fit together. For years, he pondered the riddle of nature. For years, he failed. After allegedly having not slept for three days and three nights, he'd reached a crescendo of frustration with the challenge. While the extent of sleep deprivation seems unlikely, a clear truth was Mendeleev's continued failure to crack the code. Succumbing to exhaustion, and with the elements still swirling in his mind and refusing organized logic, Mendeleev lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed, and his dreaming brain accomplished what his waking brain was incapable of. The dream took hold of the swirling ingredients in his mind, and in a moment of creative brilliance, snapped them together in a divine grid, with each row and each column having a logical progression of atomic and orbiting electron characteristics, respectively. In Mendeleev's own words, I saw in a dream a table where all elements fell into place as required. Awakening, I immediately wrote it down on a piece of paper. Only in one place did a correction later seem necessary. Walker continues on the next page with a different example that I just can't help but share. 
We also know of precious artistic gifts that have arisen from dreams. Consider Paul McCartney's origination of the songs Yesterday and Let It Be. Both came to McCartney in his sleep. In the case of Yesterday, McCartney recounts the following dream-inspired awakening while he was staying in a small attic room of his family's house in Wimpole Street, London, during the filming of the delightful movie Help. I woke up with a lovely tune in my head. I thought, that's great, I wonder what that is. There was an upright piano next to me, to the right of the bed by the window. I got out of bed, sat at the piano, found G, found F sharp minor seventh, and that all leads you through to B, to E minor, and finally back to E. It all leads forward logically. I liked the melody a lot, but because I dreamed it, I couldn't believe I'd written it. I thought, no, I've never written anything like this before. But I had, which was the most magic thing. You're welcome for not reading that entire thing in Paul McCartney's voice. There are a huge number of ideas and songs and stories and discoveries that have changed the world that have originated in dreams. This is one of the very few phenomena that at first looks magical, but upon further inspection, still ends up being magical. Right, there's no bullshit here. There's no man behind the curtain, and understanding the science that underlies the process of dreaming doesn't take away from this magic. In fact, it makes it even more magical. On a related note, a lot of this thinking that we've been doing about dreams, how they work, what their purpose is in the system of our minds, how we should interpret them, how useful or non-useful they may be, all applies to any substance that people claim induces a dreamlike state. Right, again, this actually might be kind of interesting. There is a there there when it comes to dreaming, and if we reliably can ingest something, or look at something, or listen to a particular piece of music, and subsequently enter something like a dream, well, we might want to pay attention to this. We might want to inspect these kinds of experiences scientifically. Right, if it's true that we can voluntarily or semi-voluntarily enter something that resembles a dream state, and we know that there's a real utility to entering dream states when it comes to solving problems, or resolving negative emotion, or making sense of new ideas or new information, well, that might be relevant to a lot of people. We would see this capacity as something more like a superpower than any old tool. Related to this more cultural point, I think there's one last thing that remains to be said about how we look at and approach dreaming as a society. Particularly in the West, I think that we have the proclivity to ignore, or at the very least, not publicly display, the part of us that is dreamlike. The part of us that's a bit more chaotic, bizarre, disordered, eccentric, and so on. You know, we have a tendency to tuck in our shirts and slick back our hair and simplify our personalities to make them sleek. And I call bullshit on this. You know, this is an act. People are weird. People are a little crazy. Everybody has the strangest dreams in the world every single night, whether or not we admit it, whether or not we even remember it. And to go around in waking life as if none of this happens to any of us is just nonsense. And I think it's fairly clear that sooner rather than later, we need to outgrow this kind of constipated worldview as a species, as a culture, and as individuals. One of the most interesting things about each one of us is that every night, for a little bit of time, we go away to this bizarre, quasi-psychedelic dreamscape where we can explore new information, we can make new connections, we can disable old boundaries, and we can become 
newer, transformed creatures. This is something worth celebrating. It's something worth talking about. And I hope you agree that it's been something that's been interesting to think about. Thanks for tuning in.